Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. We are allowing private banks to create something that should be a public utility, namely our currency. They determine who gets it and on what terms, and they are not creating enough money to pay back their own loans, and they like it that way because that means if people don't have enough money to pay off their loans, they have to scramble around and borrow. So they're always in debt, and the banks like that. That's the voice of Ellen Brown. On this week's show, we speak to Ellen Brown about universal basic income, public banking, and the new Green Deal. So stay tuned. I'm very privileged this morning to be joined by Ellen Brown. She's the author of Web of Debt. Thank you for being with us, Ellen. Oh, thanks, Sylvia. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. Now, when we think about the economic crisis of capitalism, it seems this is a cyclical thing that occurs you know, since 2008, we're still living uh, the ramifications of the downturn and uh, what seems to be a stagnant economy. Can we talk a little bit about the impact that debt has on the way our system organizes its modes of, modes of production and the impact this has on people? Right. Right now, all governments are in debt. Our businesses have hit record debt levels. Students are at record debt levels. Credit card, this is in the U.S., credit card is record levels. Auto loans, they're all at record record levels. So who are they in debt to? They're in debt to the banks. Uh, and the reason, I would argue, <laughs> I'll get pushed back on this, but is that banks actually create our money supply. I mean, the Bank of England has now acknowledged that. The Federal Reserve has acknowledged it. So they create it as loans. But they only create the principal. They don't pre- create the interest. So always there is more money owed back than there is in the system to pay off those loans. And after the 2008 collapse, businesses and individuals and governments were all heavily in debt. I mean, they're still struggling with old debts. Like if you have a business, you're not going to step up production until until you've got new consumers, for one thing. So the demand is down because people are busy paying off their debts. And the the businesses themselves are paying off their old debts, and so they don't have the resources to expand and produce more. So it's, it slows the economy. Uh, the debt grows exponentially while productivity grows linearly. So the way our economy works, we just we've gone through 200 years of boom and bust and boom and bust. In other words, it expands with debt, more and more debt until we can't sustain the debt anymore, and then it collapses. And of course, the wealthy snatch up the homes on which <laughs> borrowers have defaulted, and uh, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and that's the syndrome we've been in for 200 years. So that's why I would argue we need a universal basic income or some other injection of new money every year into the economy. You you need new money to fill that gap. Now, let's talk a little bit about this idea of universal basic income because at first it sounds like we're just giving people money to do nothing. You know, what's the principle behind it? Well, you are giving people money 
not, I mean, it's just like Social Security. We're giving people money to do nothing if they're retired, right? So it's basically Social Security for all, including young people. We're not talking about enough money to live on unless you're, you know, actually homeless. Of course, I've factored it at $1,000 a month or $800 a month. If it was $800 a month, it would it would take uh, $2 trillion yearly. So the point of it, first of all, is a safety net for people. Look at all the homeless we have here. It's horrible. It's outrageous to drive downtown and see homeless on the streets. I mean, on the sidewalks, you know, with their tents. There's no reason we can't be supplying a, a basic a floor like that for everyone, just like we do for old people. I mean, I personally have lived on, been on Social Security and a pension for close to 10 years. I mean, in other words, I haven't had to work for a long time, and I've never been so productive. I mean, it gives you a chance to to produce. It gives you a chance to do something creative. It gives people who hate their jobs a chance to take a chance on maybe starting their own small business of some sort. I, I love that you point that out because just because we don't have a job doesn't mean we're not being productive. And you can argue that capitalism could not exist without the appropriation of women's reproductive labor and our labor in general. You know, you call it domestic, and that's one way of avoiding the fact that that is work that is being done and it's not being paid for. Right. And for women, like you say, it's if they're not if they're not getting the UBI, they're getting welfare, which is the same thing. I mean, yeah, you need some way to live, but it's not just that people need it. I mean, it's not just the social aspect, but the economy needs it. And even like Silicon Valley, they recognize that they need they need buyers, and they they need consumers with money in their pockets to spend. Their consumption doesn't come from the wealthy all the all the money is trickling up to the wealthy and there's only a limited amount of consumer products that they can buy they put their money in speculative investments or offshore tax havens or who knows what but it's not it's not in the local productive consumer economy so that's another thing that takes money out of the system so that there's not enough money to repay loans. All money, 95% of the money supply in the U.S. is generated by banks when they make loans. But the people who get that money, who are paid for whatever, often don't spend it back into the the system. They save it, put it under their mattress, whatever, uh, send it abroad. So it's just not available to pay down loans. The big objection always is that it's just welfare for the poor and that you're taking from the rich and giving it to the poor because the only experiments that have ever been done and the actual legislative proposals that have been made were with tax money. In other words, redistributing wealth. And I'm arguing that you don't need to redistribute wealth. You need to put some new wealth out there, some new money out there, and it will not be inflationary. Half of that will go to pay down debts. And just as money is created when it's uh, as a loan, when the loans are paid off, it's extinguished. So that half would just disappear. Most people would say, you know, this is this sounds like socialism. This sounds like something a socialist government would do, you know, create some kind of way to equalize the injustice and the inequality in society. Can you give us some examples of places where the universal basic income has been tried? Uh, are there any, you know, Western-like economies that have tried it? Um, there's, there's several European 
countries that have done pilot projects. You could argue they're somewhat socialist. Under Richard Nixon, there was a um, study, and it was quite successful. The, the study was to see if people would just squander the money or if they would put it to productive use. And, and what they found was that people did put it pr- to productive use. Many started their own business, that type of thing. Or they, if they weren't working, they went, they improved their educational status or you know, just did other things that were useful to the community. They didn't just fritter away their time. There's a very big study going on now in India, but it hasn't been completed. I don't remember what the numbers are, but a huge number of people, and they are funding it with tax money. You know, the government's funding it. Nobody's really tried just issuing the money and filling that gap. For one thing, if you do it that way, it'll stimulate the economy, so you'll have more productivity, which means more taxes. So some of it will come back in taxes. Some of it will be extinguished as debt that's paid off. It seems to me it's the fairest way to do a debt jubilee. I mean, you've got to get either you get rid of that debt or you wait till it can't be sustained and and the economy collapses. So if we want to get rid of it, how do we do a debt jubilee? Some people say, well, you could um, uh, buy up the student debt. Just as the Federal Reserve bought up uh, mortgage-backed securities, they could buy up asset-backed securities, which are composed of student debt. But then, which is a good idea, if you ask me. But the problem is that then people who already paid their student loans will say, well, I paid mine. Why do they get theirs for free? And the underwater homeowners will say, you know, what about my mortgage debt jubilee, et cetera. So it seems to me that paying a sum to everyone is the fairest way to do it. And it solves multitude of ills at the same time. And the only question is whether it would be inflationary. And I would argue it would. We we think of empire today as something of the past, but the truth is, our government, at least in the U.S. and in Canada, seem very invested in regime change in other countries. And that money is being spent in our name. So if we're spending money in buying bombs and paying for oppositional governments to depose their own governments, why can we not buy our own student loans and you know offer our, our students education and free access to education, which I would argue would equalize some of the inequality and injustice that we face. Not only that, I think that um, being able to invest in our own economy, in our own people, uh, creates a, a, a buoyancy in the economy. You know, people who are doing better spend more and contribute more. So can we talk a little bit about why this inflationary cautionary tale is always used to prevent any kind of social betterment in, in terms of our social nets and uh, way of way of life, you know? Yeah, well, I would say first of all that we are one of one of the most socialist economies because half of half of our money goes to the military, which is the largest socialist engine in the. Our, our, we we do socialize a lot of our spending. We are a very socialist country when it comes to our military expenditures. Can you expand on that point? Yeah. So nobody questions when. Uh, this is something Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has brought up with the Green New Deal. Nobody questions when we spend, is it $600 billion a year, I think, on the military, because it's supposedly for protection, you know, security. But as soon as anybody brings up social pro- programs, then it's called welfare and socialism and 
redistribution and all that stuff. But security for most people is not a matter of fighting a war in the Middle East. It's a matter of having dinner on the table, you know, being able to feed the kids and maybe having a little free time and, you know, just ordinary things, being secure against catastrophes or sudden illness, that kind of stuff. And that's the security we really should be focusing on, it seems to me. Jamie Galbraith is an economist, and he says that every country is half public, half private. But it just so happens that our public sector is focused on the military. And not, not only that, but I, I wonder about the responsibility of governments owning their own banks. You know, why do we outsource that job that seems to be so essential in terms of rate of borrowing goes up or down depending you know, on Wall Street's whims, right? So can we talk a little bit about what public banking can do for our economy, for our social systems, for our society as a whole? So I'm chairman of the Public Banking Institute, and what we are focused on is if we can't get Congress to act, which is we don't have much leverage in Congress, but where we do have leverage is in our state and local governments. I mean, you can go Well, we had an excellent example here in Los Angeles where we had this very dynamic millennial group, young people. First, they persuaded the city council to divest from uh, Wells Fargo. And then the question was, where do you put your money? If not Wells Fargo, it would be some other big Wall Street bank, which is equally guilty of various corruptions. Then they got on the public banking bandwagon. So they were down there in City Hall. You know, they had like a personal relationship with the president and the the members of the city council and persuaded them to, you know, they met with them, all that stuff. There's no way that I could go to Washington, D.C. and meet with Congress people and have that kind of influence. So local level is where we can have an impact. And L.A. is a city of 4 million people. I mean, that's like many times the size of North Dakota, which has our one and only state-owned bank. So it's as good as being a state. It's bigger than some states. So a state state or municipal state-owned bank, or sorry, publicly-owned bank, if it were set up on the model of the Bank of North Dakota, which has been highly successful, the model is that all of the state's government, local government's revenues are deposited in the bank, then they can leverage their capital to 10 times what they could have done just as a revolving fund and make below market loans and <clears throat> the profits go back to the state or the city. So basically, we get the profits, so it's cheaper, but also the government is able to aim that credit, the the ability to create credit, which is what all banks do. They create money in the form of credit. Uh, we can direct that credit hose into those sectors of the economy that particularly need it and that Wall Street is just not even interested in. I mean, we make the case that we're not even competing with Wall Street because they don't even want this business. I mean, we're competing in the sense that we're taking the deposits away from them that they've got of state and local governments, but the loans we want to make, they're not even trying to make, and that's the whole point. But imagine if uh, we had our own local banks in every municipality and we were able to borrow our mortgages directly from our banks. The interest rate could be geared to to meet the needs of the economy. You know, for instance, right now, if the government of Canada were to significantly increase the interest of mortgage rates, it will 
probably sink 80% of the mortgages in British Columbia, which are one of the highest in North America. I think it's uh, second, probably probably even higher than New York. I've heard some studies. You know, not only are there benefits in having their own uh, banking system that acknowledges the needs of the community, that addresses the needs of the community, but the money comes back in. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, and that's that is what motivated the Bank of North or the North Dakotans to set up the Bank of North Dakota a hundred years ago. This is actually the uh, hundred year anniversary of the Bank of North Dakota, so we're <laughs> planning a national campaign for public banking this year. Anyways, the North Dakotans were losing their farms to big out of state banks, and so they got together, formed a political party and won an election and set up their own bank. North Dakota is actually a very conservative state. They're not a socialist state at all. Um, But the idea was sovereignty, state sovereignty, to keep our money in our state, use it for our own purposes, and direct it where our economy needs it. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, the issue of a new green deal because, as you point out earlier, in terms when when it comes to security, most people in the U.S. and I would argue Canada are more concerned about wildfires and extreme weather uh, than they are about regime change in you know Arab countries or Latin America. So, can we talk a little bit about what a new green deal that perhaps funnels money that currently goes to military and into uh, creating new energy could do for our economy. Right. It could definitely put people to work. I mean, the, the Green New Deal that's being proposed is partly about um, the environmental issues. And those are, that's the part that I think is really controversial about getting rid of gas burning cars and all that. Um, and then, but it's also partly about a social safety net. In other words, establishing Medicare for all, basically, um, some sort of possibly a universal basic income, uh, guaranteeing a job for all, that kind of stuff. That's what Roosevelt wanted to do in the 1940s. He had an economic bill of rights where he said it that we have our Bill of Rights, that you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but you can't really pursue life and liberty and happiness without a certain economic safety net. And so his economic Bill of Rights said that we should have all those things, free education, that kind of stuff. Of course, there are different factions, even of the Green New Deal group, and they say different things, but part of their funding mechanism that they put in their original proposal was that it would be funded by government institutions, including the Federal Reserve, which would imply quantitative easing for the people, quantitative easing that actually got into the real economy, a national public bank or a network of public banks. So a national public bank, I'm assuming, means something like a a development bank of the sort that many countries have, like I wrote an article on Germany's KFW, which was largely responsible for financing their renewable energy revolution. I mean, they're considered the leaders in renewables. 50% of their commercial banks are, um, are publicly owned, so they just have this very good system for supporting their local businesses. And their development bank, KFW, is did that part of it. And a network of public banks could facilitate, like 
infrastructure, et cetera, locally. I, I was asking about, you know, the benefits, not only the benefits, but the, the kinds of wonderful opportunities that creating a new Green Deal would offer us in terms of, as you point out, improving the economy, providing um, employment for people. But also, I think, can we talk a little bit about the impact that machines are having? Because uh, according to one of your articles, within the next 45 years, we will be outperformed by machines. And so at some point, we have to think about how we will organize our society and our systems to create more equity and, you know, social stability. That's why um, Silicon Valley people are actually in favor of a UBI because who's going to buy their products? If if the products are made by machines and the machines don't, uh, you know, they can work 24 hours a day and they don't get a salary, <laughs> they don't have any food needs, et cetera. So you need it, you need to get some money out there to keep the to keep the game going, uh, which reminds me of somebody wrote to me about um, his he was playing uh, Monopoly with his granddaughter five year old granddaughter, and he was kind of bored and she had all the money and he said well I'm out he said I and he started to push away from the table, and so she this five year old took half of her her money and gave it to him <laughs> because even a five year old knows. That if you want to keep the game going, you've got to spread the money around. That's a beautiful example. And I, I also love that you are very um, clear in the way you write about not only is this not inflationary in terms of creating a universal basic income, what you call a UBI, it's it's actually a, a way to promote uh, to make our economies more buoyant. Um, what inspires you that not only we can do this, that this could be very beneficial and um, easy to transition into? Well, it's just the math of it. That's the thing. It's to me. It's just uh, it, what's really interesting to me is just the whole puzzle of it. That how the thing works. My first book, Web of Debt, was basically on the fact that banks, not the government, create our money supply. And at that time, it was quite it was considered conspiracy theory. But in 2014, the Bank of England came out and said it. So now it's actually official. But we still have to get the word out there because most people just don't don't know that. You know, if they think there's a fixed amount of money in the system, and that the government created it, and the government's like a like a household, and they have to pay their debts and you know balance their books and all that stuff, then they get all upset when the government spends a little extra. But in fact, banks are creating our money all the time. Banks are busily inflating the money supply every single day, creating money as loans. And what we need to do is transfer that power back to the government. I mean, even if we let the banks continue as they are, the government should at least have equal rights to be creating money, put it out there. You could put it out there as a loan. They made zero interest loans to banks in, after 2008, they could do the same thing for state and local governments, make zero interest loans to build infrastructure, which is basically what Roosevelt did to get the whole economy rebuilt built during the 1930s. They just got the money out there as a loan. To, they lent to every form of infrastructure that could pay back. They were called self-liquidating loans that you would put the money out there, it would build something, and then the fees from the thing it built would pay the loan off. So 
fees for electricity, fees for railroads, um, you know, dams, all that stuff that generate money. So we could do the same. So for for me, the the inspiration is just this this great jigsaw puzzle of trying to. I could see. It seems to me I could see. It seems so obvious to me how it does work and how it could work and how we could fix the whole system. And yet, people don't know that and they don't get that. So the challenge is to um, frame it in a way that you know. I just keep any opportunity I get. I jump in there and I watch the news and anything that looks topical. I jump in there and make this make the, basically this sing the same song over and over that. The problem is the way our money is coming into the system. We need to recapture that. We are allowing private banks to create something that should be a public utility, namely our currency. They determine who gets it and on what terms, and they are not creating enough money to pay back their own loans, and they like it that way because that means if people don't have enough money to pay off their loans, they have to scramble around and borrow. So they're always in debt. And the banks like that. I think the 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 interest、uh, rates alone are criminal. You know, if you think back to the era of Caesar, if you had interest loans of sixteen, I think you'd be. You would be trial for treason or something. I think I, I read somewhere that that was totally considered criminal. And now you know、mm-hmm. we we、yeah. see money lenders out there with like thirty percent interest and thirty one percent interest and. People don't realize that they're paying interest, but it's the merchant that pays. So they're paying three or four percent on every single trade. So these trades only go for, on average, it's a thirty-day loan. If you pay three percent over a year, that's thirty-six percent, and we, the people, are paying it because the merchants have to raise their prices to to cover this the cost of interest. But if we had our own bank, we could create loans that address that. Well, I've seen proposals, which I think is a great idea, that to let everyone have an account at the Federal Reserve. Right now, the banks have their money at the Federal Reserve, but what is their money? It's our money. So they have their reserves parked at the Federal Reserve, earning 2.5 percent interest. And we, meanwhile, are getting anywhere from zero to like zero point three percent on that. So they're getting a huge spread on our money just by leaving it very securely at the at the Federal Reserve. You know, if if you were to leave us with one,、um, with your most profound statement, you know, what what would you, what would be your wish for the people of North America? Uh, in in regards to how we organize, how we transform our economy, and the way we we do、uh, banking in the twenty first century. Well, I think we have to recognize that money and banking are public utilities. That we the people should own the banks, or at least some of them. That the Federal Reserve should actually be a public institution mandated to serve the public interest. Using the central bank and the、uh, national development bank would be good, and state and local public public banks. We we wouldn't you wouldn't even have to like nationalize the big Wall Street banks because you know they're going to oppose that. Although the next time we have a crisis, when they're in trouble, instead of bailing them out, what the government should do is nationalize them. They should have done it the last time. But anyway, you could just set up an alternative public banking system, and 
people will go there because it's a better it's a better system. We've seen that in New Zealand where Kiwi Bank is their post post office bank, but they actively are competing with the private banks and they've attracted a lot of customers away from the pri- private banks. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is Ellen Brown. She's the author of Web of Debt. How can people access your book? Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution. And I have a third one coming out soon called Banking on the People, Democratizing Money in the Digital Age. Um, So my website is ellenbrown.com. And my books are on Amazon, among other places. And uh, for the Public Banking Institute, the website is publicbankinginstitute.org. Thank you so much much. for being with us today. Okay, thank you. Take care. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com.